If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. I'll read the verses now, and they're not a text as such, but as we go through the sermon, hopefully the importance will become obvious, will become apparent to us. The first two verses of First John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Several Sundays ago, I decided to speak on reading through Leviticus to sort of help you and to encourage you in what oftentimes has been seen as a very difficult book to read through. Um, But in the course of things, it's turned out to be a series of sorts. And we've looked at the sacrificial system. If you read Leviticus, um, a lot of it, I think, is distasteful, if I may dare say that, and doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But in going through Exodus and Leviticus, we've seen in the past few weeks the following. First of all, that it is God who determined who determined how the Israelites were to worship him. He didn't say, follow your heart. He didn't say, you know, just as the Spirit leads. He had very specific instructions. Secondly, it was not a question of sacrifice versus no sacrifice. Everyone sacrifices to a god or to an idol. We don't think in those terms, but it is true. Thirdly, we saw that worship is costly if you have to give the best of your herds an animal without blemish. Um, Fourthly, we saw the significance of sin. If you've committed a sin, then there is a penalty, and the penalty oftentimes seems rather high. And then lastly, we saw that all of this in Exodus and Leviticus points to the New Testament, points to the Lord Jesus and his death, his sacrifice. But one might ask, how does Leviticus and Exodus before it tie in with the Gospels? If you've been reading with us through the the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, um, some of the various offerings may not seem to have obvious connection to the person of Jesus, as others might. So, for example, the sin offering, we get that. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we get that. Uh, the scapegoat where Israel or the high priest was to confess the sins of Israel on this goat and then it was to be taken out into the wilderness and let loose. Jesus is taken outside the city and there he is crucified. Um, Paul tells us, for example, Jesus as a sin offering, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then the verse I read last week, um, Jesus was raised, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justifications. Our justification. We also saw last week that so much is taken up with the issue of blood. You can't read the first seven chapters of Leviticus and not read about blood. And why all of this? Well, as we saw last week in the death of Jesus, blood is important. The apostles mention it. The, The church is that which he bought with his own blood, that he has made peace between all things and himself through the blood of Jesus in Colossians 1. 
and that we were redeemed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And in Hebrews 13, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So we have the blood of Jesus that is taken in. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So blood is important. But let's consider a moment what we find in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four Gospels. They are four accounts, or they tell the story of Jesus' life in four different ways. Uh, Each one mentions or emphasizes certain things that perhaps the others mention in passing or don't mention at all. Each one has a different focus. Uh, Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament in Matthew. In Mark, he is seen as a servant. In Luke, he is seen as a man. And in John, he is seen as the Son of God. Um, If anyone has read any part of the Bible, I'm sure it's the Gospels. And in fact, when I was growing up, it was often said that when a person became a Christian, the first book they should read is the Gospel of John. So the Gospels are familiar to us. But I think this may surprise you. That the passion, the suffering, the death of Jesus takes up one quarter to one third of the Gospels. Let's go with the smaller number, one fourth. That's 25% of the Gospels deal with the death of Jesus. And we see Jesus in three different occasions found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, saying that he's going to Jerusalem and there he's going to suffer and there he's going to die. Uh, This is from Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is Matthew 16. Matthew has 28 chapters. That means a little past the halfway mark, Jesus is already talking about his death. Just think about that for a moment. 25% of the gospel accounts are taken up with the death of Jesus. So to have an entire book like Leviticus, portions of Exodus to deal with the sacrificial system doesn't seem too extreme, does it? Of the first five books of the Bible, one of them would deal with the sacrificial system. The cross is central to the Christian faith. This doesn't mean that everybody likes it or is comfortable with it. Paul had to deal this early on with the Corinthians. The Corinthians had become Christians, but they started to become really embarrassed about the issue of Jesus being someone who was crucified. So he has to write to them, In the first chapter, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Corinthians were embarrassed by the fact that Jesus had been crucified. Why? See, this is something that over the centuries I think we've lost sight of. Um, Crucifixion was the form of execution for the lowest members of society. 
if you were middle class or upper class, you'd never, you didn't get crucified. Okay, you, if they said we're going to crucify this guy and you had money, you could sort of buy your way out. They'd cut off your head. You're still going to die, but you're not going to die by crucifixion. And is it a matter of pain? Well, there certainly is that. It would sometimes take someone three days to die. But it was more than that. It was a form of execution meant to degrade the person as much as possible. Crucifixion was degradation. Okay. I think we've lost sight of that. We think of the blood, we think of the pain and the suffering, and that's all there. But the Corinthians are embarrassed because they say, oh yeah, we follow Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, wasn't he the guy who was crucified? Well, you know, then suddenly people are embarrassed. They don't want to talk about that. And I think we've lost sight of that by the fact that people now wear crosses or crucifixes and they forget that it, in fact, was a form of degradation. It was intended not only to execute, that was almost like, oh, well, that's sort of an extra. It was intended to degrade the person. And I think we've lost sight of that in the church. One theologian has said, as a general rule, the theology of glory will drive out the theology of the cross every time in a comfortable society. That is to say, when we are comfortable, when things are cool, we don't want to talk about crucifixion, about degradation. We want to talk about the glory of Christ. We find that the Corinthians wanted to talk about their spiritual gifts, about their spirituality. They wanted to glory in the fact that they had these unusual abilities. And we find in their case, as well as with the false apostles or the super apostles, as we find in Second Corinthians, um, they never talk about the cross. They talk about spirituality, they talk about spiritual gifts, but they don't talk about the death of Jesus. And this is why they had real shortcomings when it came to love. It is to those who do not want to talk about the cross, who are embarrassed by the cross, that Paul writes an entire chapter on love, because they are really deficient in that area. And he tells them, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We live generally, I think, in a comfortable society, and so the theology of glory or victory has driven up the theology of the cross. And that's why Leviticus makes us uncomfortable and we'd rather not read it and we sort of get bogged down in the details. But why is it that we do not talk that much or think that much about the cross? In a word, Gnosticism. Gnosticism in its various forms was the first, I would say the first heresy and has been uh, been there ever since against the church fighting what the church teaches. One writer has said, while it is the, more, the most pervasive and popular alternative, it is not the most worthy alternative. Um, that would be Stoicism. Yeah, but people aren't really into Stoicism. I don't have it in my notes, but I've been thinking, to call someone an American Gnostic is almost redundant. And to call somebody an American Stoic is an oxymoron. Because Americans just are not into saying no, okay, denying themselves. But this idea of spirituality, I'm religious, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, that's Gnosticism. Yeah, I think that's what we find in our society today. 
Gnosticism is the rival to the Christian faith, and particularly when it comes to the matter of the cross. What is Gnosticism? To answer that question, I think, is more difficult and would need more time than we have today, because by its very nature, it's, it's like almost trying to nail jello to a wall. It, it's, it's got so many different incarnations, so many various forms. Um, but there are certain things that we can say about Gnosticism. First of all, it begins, or it starts, it is based on the word gnosis in Greek, knowledge. And so Gnosticism is all about knowing. It's all about knowledge. And in Gnosticism, it is believed that the way of salvation is the way of knowledge. We don't need the cross. You simply need knowledge. Um, This may seem to be such a familiar idea that we will fail to understand how dangerous it really is. Because people would say, well, wait a minute. In the Gospels, didn't Jesus speak to the crowds in parables? But then when he was alone with the disciples, he, said, he explained the parables. Yes, that is true. But he told them what the parables meant so that they could then tell the crowds what they meant. In Matthew 10, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. The Gnostics are quite the opposite. They claim to know things other people don't know. And that's why they're saved, because they have this special or secret knowledge. And while they were not Gnostics, this is the attitude that we find among the Corinthians. And Paul tries to correct them, beginning in chapter 8. Now about food offered to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, or so you say. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Paul does two very interesting things here. First of all, he shifts the emphasis from knowledge to love. And for the Corinthians, that's a big deal, because it was all about knowing. I have this special knowledge. And Paul's like, yeah, knowledge is good, but love is more important. And the second thing he does is he reverses the direction of knowledge. The Corinthians are saying, we know this about God. We know these things. And he's like, you know, what's important is that God knows you. Rather than saying you have knowledge, you should say that God has knowledge of you and God loves you. And therefore, your proper response to him and others is to love. The two great commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul fleshes this out further in that chapter on love, in chapter 13. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. It's useless. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. John in 1 John, which is where our text is found, says that love is the mark of a Christian. The man who says, I know him, Gnostic, Gnosis, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Okay? So Gnosticism is about knowledge. The second thing about it, about Gnosticism, is that this special knowledge leads to a hierarchy so that you have people who know more than others and therefore they are in the chain, they are higher up, they have higher levels. At first this may not seem to be the case and I would dare say that if a Gnostic was to evangelize you, um, it would seem very egalitarian, this is knowledge, you can have this knowledge, but once you get into the system you begin to find that there are people higher up the ladder than you who have this secret knowledge. Again we find this in the Corinthians that certain Corinthians thought that they were better than others because they knew more. They were more spiritual because of their knowledge than other people. And the problem shows up in the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. In other words, the church is not a unified body as it should be. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's favor. If you don't know Paul, you miss, you miss that he's being really ironic there. It's like, well, obviously, you have to have differences because some of you are more special than others. This is what the Corinthians believe. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Instead of caring for one another, instead of loving one another, they were all sort of measuring who's higher up on the, on the ladder of spirituality in the Corinthian church. Paul tells them in the very next chapter on spiritual gifts. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. There should not be a hierarchy. There should be concern, and this concern comes from the fact that we are God's people, we are to be motivated by love, but more than that, it is the theology of the cross. In the cross we see suffering, redemptive suffering. We see compassion, if you wish, the passion of Christ for others. This is a foreign idea when it comes to Gnosticism. The third thing about Gnosticism is that the material world is undervalued or devalued. In this regard, I think one could make the case that almost all human religions are Gnostic. The emphasis is on spiritual experience, not religious practices, but on spiritual experience. Um, and at the same time, there seems to be a lack of interest in the human struggle for justice and dignity. What is desired, I would say, in most world religions is the avoidance of suffering. And the cross, the suffering of Christ, is central to the Christian faith. Um, one teacher put it this way, the crucifixion is a very painful image to me. It does not contain joy or peace. And this does not do justice to Jesus. Yeah, people don't want to hear about the suffering of Jesus. By the way, uh, of the gospel stories, of the gospel parables, the prodigal son is one of the favorite among Muslims. 
And the reason for that is the son is forgiven, the prodigal son is forgiven when he comes home. No sacrifice. Okay? Nobody has to die. Nobody has to suffer. He is brought home without any suffering. Well, that's taken one parable out of all the other parables. But the idea that Jesus had to suffer, I think is very offensive to so many people. The material world is seen as unimportant. It is devalued. What is valued is the spiritual, the unseen, the unknown, that you're reaching out for to somehow have this experience. And that's why we have our text today in 1 John 1. You know, John starts out by saying, you know, we have seen Jesus. We have touched him. We have heard him. You know, in the physical, in the material world, Jesus was here. And his salvation is that which we proclaim. Gnosticism, Gnosticism is filled with irony, and this is one area in which this is true. You have basically two views of sexuality um, in Gnosticism. The one says that the sex act is intensely spiritual, and so it is access to the divine, and so everyone should engage with it in it as much as possible. On the other hand, sex is seen as having no importance whatsoever because the body is not important at all. The most important difference, I, though, I would say, between Gnosticism and the Christian faith is that Gnosticism claims that humans have the capacity on their own to reach out to God, to reach some level of spirituality. If knowledge is the key, then those who have and can have knowledge are able to go up the spiritual ladder of success, if you wish. Simply put, we don't need a redeemer, we can redeem ourselves. Well, then the, the crucifixion, the cross, is completely unnecessary. Now, you might be wondering at this point, I thought we were talking about Leviticus and Exodus and the sacrificial system. Why all this on Gnosticism? Because I'm convinced that Gnosticism in all its forms creeps into our lives. And it prevents us from understanding the biblical witness of the crucifixion. It is believed that Gnosticism was one of the first heresies that sprung up in contrast to the Christian faith. And the one thing that we find is they have no interest in the cross. Some of you may know of this, that uh, there are, in the last 100, 150 years, various documents have been found that are called Gospels. So we have the Gospel of Thomas, for example, um, and you know, the not the Dead Sea Scroll, but Nag Hammadi, which is found in, in Egypt. You have all these new Gospels. And what is striking about them is they don't talk about the cross. No. And they may mention the suffering of Jesus, but just in passing. It's not like our Gospels, in which one-fourth of them are dedicated to the idea of the death of Jesus. Their emphasis is on the revelation of the divine. It's based on knowledge. The emphasis in the four Gospels is on the suffering of the Messiah. Why the difference? Because Gnosticism, the key is knowledge. And why do you want knowledge? To avoid suffering. You don't want to suffer. And when you look at the Christian faith, the central component is the sufferings of Jesus. These are two radically different systems. And let's face it, one of them is much more appealing to us, the idea that we can avoid suffering of any kind. 
and therefore it has attracted many, even those who are Christians. The gospel shows us that the path of glory passes through real suffering. And how can we ignore the words of Jesus? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. By the way, these are words that Jesus spoke right after he told his disciples that he was going to suffer. Paul is quite clear about this in 2 Corinthians 4. For we have this treasure, that is the gift of life in Christ, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Powerful words, if we would take them to heart. But again, why, why, the, why is the cross so important? Well, in what seems to me to be a strange twist in human history, one finds that in the early church there were those who denied that Jesus was human. Okay, because to them that almost seemed a form of blasphemy. How can God be human? Uh, in our time, it's quite the opposite. Uh, people deny the deity of Jesus, and they're, they're fine with the idea that Jesus was crucified or that he died on a cross. But what we find in the Gospels, in the church creeds, is a focus on his suffering. Today, at the beginning of our service, we read the Apostles' Creed together. And it is interesting that the life of Jesus is basically told in one word, suffered. So he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Some have complained, and I remember a particular professor who complained that this really does not do justice to the life of Jesus. Jesus taught, he performed miracles, he raised the dead, uh, he healed people, he fed thousands. And none of this is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Read the Nicene Creed, which comes centuries later. Still no mention of what Jesus taught or what he did. Read the epistles. It's the same thing. The focus is not on his life, but on his death. Why is that? Is his life unimportant? Not at all. We need to understand that it is the cross that validates everything Jesus did in his life. That is to say, let's say for the sake of example that Jesus came through the Virgin Mary and that he began to perform miracles and he did all the things that we find in the Gospels, but then he didn't die on the cross. One could say that all the things he did would be invalid. They would not be validated. It is his death on the cross that says that everything that Jesus did was right that he was sent by the Father. And yet, if we're not careful, we would rather ignore the cross, and certainly many do. One author put it this way, if avoidance of suffering is the aim of religion, it is no wonder that so many are drawn to its various manifestations and repelled by the cross. The cross, in fact, may repel us. 
There have been scholars in the last 150 years or so who have been part of what's called the quest for the historical Jesus. They want to find the real Jesus of history. The latest such movement has concluded uh, that, in fact, the cross uh, and the resurrection were creations by the apostles and probably by Paul. Paul always seems to be the scapegoat, always the fall guy for this, um, that they made these things up after Jesus was gone. Two conclusions are usually mentioned, and if you think of the Jesus Seminar, you, you find this in them, that Jesus was either a mystic or a teacher, a healer, a sage, a wonder worker, a political revolutionary, or a teacher of an alternative spirituality. Read Gnosticism. He taught people secret knowledge. And the second thing is that Jesus' death is seen as the inevitable consequence of being a threat to the status quo. You know, you mess with the religious leaders, there's going to be trouble. You mess with the political leaders, the Romans, there's going to be trouble. So yeah, of course Jesus died because he tried to rock the boat. As intriguing as these ideas are, there's one big problem. They fail to explain why people became Christians. And the reality is, that everything Jesus did in his earthly ministry was provisional until Jesus was crucified. It is the cross and the cross alone that seals his mission, and in retrospect, it explains everything. How is Jesus able to do these things? By his stripes we are healed. Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter 8, as Jesus is healing people, he quotes from Isaiah. What stripes are we talking about? Look ahead to the scourging and the crucifixion. Those things are what enabled Jesus to do what he did during his earthly ministry. So without the crucifixion, Jesus' earthly ministry, I think, lacks. There's something missing, and it can't be real. I would even take it a step further and say that the incarnation without the crucifixion doesn't work. God in the flesh, but not crucified, I think is not valid. We have imagined, I think at different times, that the fact that Jesus came in the flesh sort of sanctifies or hallows human experience, physical reality. If God came down as a human being, it must be cool to be human. Okay. Instead of thinking that Jesus came here, that he might suffer as our sacrifice. It is his death, which several moments ago we have remembered and we proclaim the Lord's Supper. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Not in my spirit, but in my blood. I believe, and thus this sermon today, that we do not begin to understand such words unless we have read Exodus and Leviticus. We need to read about the sacrificial system that God gave to Moses and that Moses spoke to the people of Israel. In doing so, we recognize that God is in charge. By the way, in Leviticus, almost 50 times we read the expression, I am the Lord. God's giving instructions and he says, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who's going to tell you what to do. We recognize that he is to be obeyed. We don't have an option. And we see this in chapter 10 of Leviticus, that Nadab and Abihu decide, hey, we'll do incense. We're going to follow our heart. We're going to burn incense the way we want. And God killed them 
we are to obey him. We learn that to obey God is costly. To give the best of your animals for sacrifices is costly. Because the consequences of sin are death. And we see that it all points to Jesus. I am convinced after looking through this that the one reason that Gnosticism succeeds is because people do not read Exodus and Leviticus. The Old Testament for that matter. If you only have the New Testament, then Gnosticism seems like a real possibility. But when you see that God sets up a system based on sacrifice in response to the issue of sin, then suddenly the New Testament is seen in a different light. The death of Jesus, if seen without Leviticus, might be seen as a tragedy, a martyrdom, uh, that he's a victim, he's a casualty of political intrigue. But if you read Leviticus, you know this can't be. You know that he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Have you ever wondered why the gospel writers included the death of Jesus in their account? Why did they give a full 25% of their writings to the matter of his suffering and his death? Jesus died on a cross, the death of a criminal. We are told in legal terms he was numbered with the transgressors. It was a degrading death. He hung on a cross as one who is cursed, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. He died outside the camp, outside the city. If if you're writing the story of Jesus, don't you want to leave that stuff out? Don't you want somehow to um, clear his name, to save his reputation? Uh, To somehow say that a gross injustice has been done against this man? to write all about his life but say nothing about his death. This doesn't seem to have occurred to the gospel writers at all. At all. As one writer put it, they literally glory in the cross. That is his sacrifice. They are clear with an absolute conviction that the best and most wonderful thing that he ever did was to die a felon's death between two robbers that he was executed as a common criminal. See, I think to the extent that we are Gnostic, without even realizing it, the cross seems so foreign to us, so strange. Not to the Gospel writers. This was the center. This is the Christian faith. And I'm convinced that the writers of the Gospels were able to do this because they knew Exodus and Leviticus. I mentioned this last Sunday, say it again, that one writer put it this way, their only sources, the early church, for discovering the meaning of the strange death of their Lord was the scriptures that they had always known. Imagine the attention with which early Christian leaders searched every syllable of the Hebrew Bible, seeking to understand how the terrible death of the Son of God had been in the mind and plan of God all along. It must have been a very exciting process. Anyone reading Leviticus and thinking of Jesus at the same time could hardly fail to notice a phrase like a male without blemish in the list of stipulations. 
This is the sort of detail that would jump off the page of the Hebrew scriptures in those first years of, after the resurrection. Those who know Exodus and Leviticus can appreciate the death, the cross. Those who start in Matthew and ignore the Old Testament, they've got real problems and Gnosticism creeps in. And the death of Jesus is seen as tragic. Um, we might see him as a victim. You know, Albert Schweitzer's famous thing that he threw himself on the wheel of history and the wheel of history ground him down and killed him. Um, but we don't start in Matthew 1. And in this year, as we've been reading through the scriptures, we began in Genesis 1, and then Exodus, and then Leviticus. And in doing that, it helps us when we get to the Gospels. We're like, now I get it. Now I see why the cross was so important. Now I see why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spent a full 25%. You know, imagine you have a papyrus and you're writing out a Gospel and you're like, okay, I've got to... I've got to got to scope this out. I've only got X amount of space. What am I going to say about his life? What am I going to say about his death? And the death takes up a full quarter of the scroll. For the Gnostics and for many today, the Old Testament is ignored. Um, some find it boring. Some find it appalling. Um, some find it very offensive, all this talk about blood. And so when we get to the death of Jesus, um, we see it in a very different way. One of the things that was said about the Passion of the Christ, uh, Mel Gibson's film, which I confess um, I never saw, simply because I was told it was a very violent movie and very bloody movie, um, that the focus seemed to be on the suffering and on the blood. Those are important components. But the reality is, this was God's plan all along. See, Jesus could have come in the Old Testament and then he would have been stoned to death. That doesn't work. Or he might have been burned at the stake. That doesn't work. Crucifixion is the way in which God chose for his son to die as a sacrifice for his people. Just as we read in Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4. So we read through these, we learn about all these sacrifices. We see them fulfilled in Jesus. So, as a congregation, as we read through the Old Testament, it begins to help us understand, I think in a deeper way, what happens in the person of Jesus. We are not to be Gnostics. We are God's people. God created the world. By the way, Gnostics believe that God didn't create the world. Some other God did. That's why the world is bad. No, no, God created the world. And then because of Adam and Eve, sin came, death came. And Jesus comes to redeem us from that. And it requires his death. And what kind of death? Uh, accidental death? Uh, a death victim of political intrigue? You know, all these things? No, no, no. This is a sacrifice. This is God's plan to provide salvation for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a time in which it is said that we know more than the human race has ever known and that the amount of knowledge seems to grow exponentially as time goes on. And there's something very intoxicating about knowing, about learning. 
Indeed, Jesus tells us that we are to learn of him. But oftentimes, we get carried away and we begin to think it is our knowledge that provides our salvation. And as we imagine ourselves to be more cultured and sophisticated, primitive ways of execution are an embarrassment. To imagine that Jesus died such a degrading death is something that we might mention in passing, but quickly move on to the good stuff. Like the Corinthians, we want to be spiritual. The reality is, the death of Christ has purchased our salvation. He died as a sacrificial lamb, just as all the animals we read about in Exodus and Leviticus. We are to take your word as a whole and not simply pick and choose the parts that we like. Because when taken as a whole, we begin to see things in a new light. And once again, we see how important the cross is. It is the center of the Christian faith. Sometimes we are embarrassed by our brothers and sisters and their presentation of the gospel. And in some cases, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. May we glory in the cross. Because without the cross, we have nothing. Pray for each one as we read through scripture this year. You would give us understanding. And as we talk about these things, may we help each other. May we encourage one another as we continue in this project. We pray for those that aren't with us today, for those that are coming back, for Dan and Lonnie, who may be flying even as we pray for tests. Keep them safe and bring them to us safely. We thank you for your faithfulness, your great mercy and love. May we reflect that love to those around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.